just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Jersey Jump Shot, the first and only podcast dedicated exclusively to college basketball in the Garden State. I'm Jerry Carino, and this is my 21st season covering this great sport here in New Jersey. We've crossed the midway point of the 2023-24 season, and you know who has the best winning percentage in all of college basketball? The Princeton Tigers at 15-1. and and slowly but surely approaching the AP Top 25. The Tigers checked in 32nd this week in the poll with a big game coming up at Cornell. Our guest for today is one of the principal architects of this Princeton squad, associate head coach Brett McConnell. He's a Rutgers grad, having cut his teeth as a manager with the Scarlet Knights. He recruited most of the squad that won the Ivy League and made the NCAA tournaments Sweet 16 last March. He's the pride of Montgomery Township. Brett, welcome to Jersey Jump Shot. Thanks, Jerry. That's a, that's a great introduction, man, on many levels. I appreciate it. I'm a big fan of the show and honored to be on today. All right. Well, you've done a great job with this squad, and I have a lot to ask you. There's so much to talk about. It's been such a fascinating season. There are two seasons for Princeton. Um, let's start where last season ended. Looking back on last March, Brett, the, from the Ivy League tournament to the Sweet 16, was there one moment or story that stands out most that crystallizes the whole experience for you in the program? Uh, man, well, you know, winning the conference tournament is, is, is everything to the, to the program and, and, and everything it takes to, to put into that. And you don't get a ton of time to, to sit back and soak it up because we play the conference championship game on Sunday, selection shows Sunday night. Turns out we're going to be shipped off to Sacramento to play Arizona. We're leaving the next morning bright and early. Uh, so, again, not much time to do anything but to get prepared for Arizona. Um, Arizona, uh, we play them Thursday. Quick turnaround, one of the first games of the tournament. Beat them, and literally there is still water being sprayed in the locker room after that win, and, and I'm on the laptop pulling up Missouri film. And I love sure it. That that we've got everything that we need to get ready on a quick turnaround, one day prep to, to get ready to beat Missouri. And uh, the one moment, you know, that stands out to me through that process was, um, you know, pregame, probably like 30 minutes, 45 minutes before tip, uh, before we play Missouri, we're in, you know, the Sacramento Kings, beautiful NBA arena. It's the best locker room uh, we've sat in all season by far. There's That's six sure. TVs. Finally, like, we presented the scout to the guys. You get a moment to yourself. You're sitting with some of the other coaches in, in the locker room, and you, you look up at the screen, and Kansas is playing somebody in the tournament. And on the bottom scrolling, it's like, next up, number seven, Missouri, against number 15, Princeton. And I'm like, wait, that's us. We're playing in the second round of the tournament for a chance to go to the Sweet 16. Like, it it finally hits you. You get a chance to right. to soak it in there for a second. And then, and then I'll tell you, when we beat Missouri to have, you know um, – 
uh, that was a Saturday, and and we had a little bit of time to let that soak in before we even knew who our opponent would be. And that was as good as it gets celebrating that that win and, and knowing you're going to the Sweet 16. Well, it was exciting stuff. I was out there with you guys in uh, when you played Creighton in Louisville, and it was it was a great moment for New Jersey college basketball. Now, uh, you you lost three really good starters. Uh, Tosana one was tearing it up in the G League, and I think the average fan and even people like myself thought, well, I'm sure Princeton will still be pretty good. I don't know if they're going to be as good. But at, at what point did it dawn on you, Brad, or did you realize that this year's team could be even better than last year's? Well, it's funny because I knew we would be very different. And uh, last year's team was was a little bit bigger, a little bit more interior-based offensively. This year's team, we spread the court. We've got five guys in that starting lineup that that can shoot threes. And, and I, I just didn't know some of the other things. And um, we opened with Rutgers, of course, who was big and physical, was going right. to rebound, um, can really defend. So it was like, okay, in, op- in opening night, if we can score on Rutgers, if we can rebound with with a bigger athletic physical team, that'll be a pretty good sign. And I thought that passing that first test um, was was really good for the confidence of the group, um, and kind of kind of got us started um, knowing, hey, we're, we are pretty good. And and I think um, the other thing, Jerry, is the the guys that did return and and that starting five all played in big moments last year. They have a, a tremendous belief, a confidence. Uh, an experience of playing in big moments and uh, nothing really seems to phase them. There's something to be said for guys playing together for a number of years. And you don't see that much anymore. You had that cohesiveness and I, and you, you mentioned the game against Rutgers. That was my next question, but you really answered it. But I want to add that what I noticed most, what jumped out at me about your opening night win against Rutgers was how physical you guys were. They're like you took the physicality to a program that's known for it. So I agree. That was the sign that this team maybe had a little something different, a little extra edge to it. Uh, let's stay with your non-conference schedule. You played seven non-conference road games because, as we've as we've written about quite a bit, it's so hard for Princeton to find opponents. Give us a sense for what it's like to schedule for you guys, how difficult it is, how frustrating it is. Maybe tell us a story or two that kind of shed some light on it. And, no, you don't have to name names, Brett. <laughs> Well, you know, first of all, we've had people around the program who want to help us with scheduling. And they're like, hey, can you give me a list of teams that you've reached out to uh, that have said no? And it's we're literally going down. the We're on Ken Palm and it's 300. Right. We're listing every team. We're like, we've reached out to all of them. Like, you don't understand. We have tried with just about all of them. Um, and, and you know, I know I think maybe you've reported on this or, or others have, but we had a signed contract before the Sweet 16 of an event we were playing in, uh, an MTE, a, a, a chance to play against a couple high majors down in Georgia. And um, two other teams were committed. And despite a signed contract, the, the, the game and the event blows up in our face because apparently they, nobody wanted to play Princeton in, oh. in the event. And, and, and what's really disappointing for me is I, I thought, all right, now that we've made a Sweet 16 – uh, the idea that we're a, a quote-unquote bad loss or there's nothing to gain from playing us, I'm thinking, man, that's going to be out the window a little bit, not to mention we're losing a guy to the NBA and losing three right. starters. Like I think, okay, we've got a chance to maybe schedule some some good teams this year, and um, unfortunately nothing's changed. If anything, it's gotten harder. And um, really like we're open to some really unique, flexible ideas, like we do what we got to do to play a game and Right. You know, you know, the St. Joe's situation and what we had to do just to just to get to get them on the schedule. So um, it's frustrating. 
But uh, it does give us a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. Like, hey, we played this many road games this year. We got to go play, you know, at X, Y, and Z. And they might not be playing us in a return. And we got to go go prove ourselves and, and um, you know, still take advantage of any opportunities we get to play these guys. That is a good point. And I do think as frustrating as it must be for you, because I know it drives me nuts that you can't get these games. So it must drive you extra nuts. But I will say it did get people's attention what you had to go through on the road this this year, and I, I, I think I've written about this, but I, I saw an email exchange that was circulated among members of, this, of the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee. Someone forwarded it to me where they did acknowledge, you know, the difficulties you guys have getting these games. And so you win a lot of road games because that's all you can get. I do think if you need it, that'll play in your favor. And either way, you know, for seeding, for at-large purposes, whatever, I think it'll probably in the end only help you in, in March. But, yeah, you'd rather, of course, do it differently than you had to. But staying on the schedule thing, uh, Brett, what are the odds you will play Rutgers again next year? Any other opponent already booked? Like, how are we looking for next year's schedule? You know, there's a few home and homes that, you know, are are to be uh, returned. But largely our schedule is is not done right now. Uh, okay. We played We played Oregon State in, I think it was the 21-22 season. And uh, that that was the very last contract, Jerry. It got signed in September of that year. I mean, that's how like hard it is for us to get games. And sometimes last minute something falls through, and we take advantage of an opportunity to to play a game that that gets signed much later than others. Uh, we're jealous of those teams that have their schedule set uh, this time of year for next season. Uh, we would love to play Rutgers. We'd love to play them every year. Um, I'll just mention we're on the Jersey jump shot, right? So Seton Hall would be awesome. We'd love to right. play them. I mean, really, truthfully, like if we could play every team in New Jersey, like let's just let's just get the round robin going. Give us give us seven local games every year that we're going to play home, away, neutral, wherever um, you can set it up for us, Jerry. But we we would love to play that. I was just mentioning that. I mean, these are really good teams. It'd be nice to just take a bus and be in your own bed that same night. Um, so anybody listening that wants to play us. <laughs> It's a great idea, the round robin. You know, people always ask me, you have eight teams, you could have a three-round tournament. But I, I've always said the tournament's never going to happen because it opens a possibility that Rutgers and Seton Hall might not play. So they wouldn't agree to that. Game's too big of a deal. It makes too much money for them. But the round robin, I really think, could really work. Uh, that's something that there's no there's no reason not to have it uh, in a traditional, like, big five-type vein. So, you know, maybe. I mean, that's something that's doable, I hope. I know that the... New Jersey's high major coaches are tired of me talking about it, writing about it, and and privately badgering them about it. So they are aware of the situation. We would love to see that happen. All right, so good. We planted that seed, and we'll keep our fingers crossed for something like that. Uh, Rutgers and you guys, Seton Hall and you guys, something along the lines of that next year. Now, let's talk about some of the players on this team, people you recruited, and uh, along with, uh, with uh, Mitch Henderson and your terrific coaching staff have developed. Xavier Lee, he is one of the breakout stories of college basketball as your sophomore point guard. How did you find this guy? Man, thrilled thrilled we did, Jerry. Uh, our, our last superstar from the Toronto area, Jalen Llewellyn, uh, his dad, Cordell, um, who was a former Division I player himself and is really well-connected in that Toronto area. It was during COVID, like kind of the the – the dark times of COVID where, where we couldn't go out recruiting. We wouldn't, couldn't go out and see people in person. He called me probably the, the spring of 2020 and say, said, Hey, there's a kid named Xavier Lee. He's, he's in the Toronto area. A buddy of mine's training him. 
It's hard to get even get into the gyms in Canada, but take a look at his high school film. Let me know what you think. And and by the way, he's grown a bit since since that high school season. And um, Jerry, I'll tell you, he was really, really small on the film. Even a photo. I went to like his Twitter page. I'm like, is this really the guy? But um, but I'll tell you, he had an incredible smoothness to his game, incredible skill set, could dribble, pass, shoot. And, and just kind of envisioning, okay, if this kid has grown the way we've heard he's grown, um, if, if he's got some room left for development, he could be, he could be pretty darn good. And, um, you know, to make a long story short, that, that point in time in COVID, uh, it wasn't until June of 2021 that we were then allowed to, to host visitors or go out to see anybody. So he was one of the first visitors that came to visit us. And then a couple weeks later, we got to see him play in person and uh, the rest was history. We really fell in love with with his game and also the type of kid he was, the family he came from, everything about him uh, was an ideal fit for us at Princeton. I love how it was a Princeton, a former Princeton player's father who was your eyes and ears up in Toronto, right? And that's that's how you know you've built a good sort of family environment or you've built a really good program when you have alums' parents reaching out to you and saying, look at this kid, and that kid winds up being a superstar, right? Yeah. That's going to make you feel good. And, and credit to Cordell because I think he was able to, to sing our praises when it came time to, to us you know, needing a decision from Xavier and his family, and I think there was a comfort level because of what, what Cordell and Jalen had to say about, about the program and the coaching staff. So you're right, that is a great sign. But I've written about this before, Brett, is that Princeton, you know, you're in a unique situation where like, you really – you really can't afford to make mistakes in your recruiting because, you know, you're not running anybody off. No one's entering the transfer portal. No one's leaving Princeton without their degree because uh, it's a life-changing thing to have a Princeton degree. And you're not you're not using the transfer portal. So, like, the guys you bring in as freshmen, they're yours for four yeah. years for the most part. You have developed this sort of eye, and you have to get it right. Uh, and then Caden Pierce is another one of those guys. Totally different player from Xavier Lee. And – one of the best rebounders in the country. Ask anybody on Missouri about that. What do you have? 17, 16, 16 rebounds against yeah. Missouri? My yeah, goodness. Um, so what where did you find him? And what do you what do you what do you look for in these guys? Like, how can you tell when no one else can that these guys are gonna be really, really good? Yeah. So I, Kate, again, I think I think we were a little bit fortunate with with the way COVID recruiting went. There was a whole bunch of fifth-year seniors coming back, the transfer portal and the idea of of rosters being a little bit oversaturated, maybe maybe slowed some of the bigger schools, uh, kept them from, from watching these high school prospects. Cade played on an awesome high school team and an awesome AAU team. Uh, state champs in Illinois, uh, national champs in the Under Armour AAU circuit. He played a little bit out of position, which I thought was a positive. He was like a, you know, at the time, probably a 6'5 point guard on his AAU team. Oh, wow. Bringing okay. the ball over midcourt. But he, but as you alluded to, he went up and got two hand rebounds well above the rim. It's it's very rare to see, um, and he was he was a little bit of a jack of all trades. And and really, uh, I was holding my breath for a number of months because I just felt like this is the biggest steal, the biggest hidden gem um, you could ever find. And again, similar to Xavier, a rock star of a student, a really well rounded um, person a winner, an unselfish guy. Um, you know, you, you alluded to, to needing to get this right, Jerry, and I, I, I do want to mention this, and it's a compliment to, to all the guys in our program, but, but we have put character first. Right. Character and work ethic, uh, academics at, at, the, at the, the front of the you know, top priorities, 
and and then talent, of course, is key. But but we don't make any compromises for for character. And um, I think in the long run, that's made us a, a closer group, better chemistry. And and the guys, they work their butts off and get better. So credit to them. And 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 uh, we're really fortunate to have both those guys. So and Xavier and, and Kay take a calculus class together. Xavier was telling me. So yes, we all know the academics are real at Princeton, but it's just it's worth reminding people that they're playing at a at a national powerhouse level while taking calculus class. So there is student athlete ideals alive and well on Nassau Street. Uh, I want to ask about Princeton's leader on the court, Matalako Mush, as you call him. Tell me about his leadership and how essential that is to what you guys are doing. You know, Jerry, over the years, I've coached guys that are that are super intense, super focused, um, really competitive. Uh, and I've coached some guys that are like the the ultimate unselfish, put the team first, put their arm around a guy, pat somebody on the back, have fun, joke. I've, I've never seen that um, both sides of that in one player. And that's what we get from from Matalaco. I mean, the guy is. His will to win, his focus on the details, the 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 attitude he brings to every practice. I mean, he he is never turned off, right? He is always uh, dialed in to 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 bring in that that winning attitude to practice. But he's also got a lightheartedness about him, uh, brings joy to practice. Is just as quick if, if somebody needs to be to be pushed a little bit, he'll push him. If somebody needs their arm wrapped around him. He'll wrap his arm around him, and uh, the guys love him. They respect him, uh, and they follow his lead. Um, he's he's the best leader I've ever been around. I heard Mitch say something after the Dartmouth game. He's, Mitch said sometimes he tells me what's going on. He tells me what to do. So I, I doubt that happens often in your program. So so that tells you a lot about Mitch's trust and his judgment. You know, you know, his uh, uh, Mush's IQ is just through the roof. You talk about a coach on the floor. I mean. Yeah. He is he is just uh, incredible. He's one step ahead of everybody else with what what the game requires, what what would work on defense, on offense, what coverages. Uh, he's incredible. I want to go back to the academics for a minute because I really think this is important. And one of my goals in this podcast is to give you know college basketball fans a glimpse beyond the court, right, into what what goes into the full the full realm of being a student athlete. Uh, and at Princeton. Well, you know what? What's it like coaching a bunch of guys who are taking calculus and economics and comparative literature and having to sort of balance what their needs are to study, right? And to to go all in on those courses, with, you know, and also to play college basketball, which is an all-consuming task at the level they're playing. How do you deal with that as a coach? Well, you know, credit to Mitch because I remember when I first got here, uh, I was coming from from ops at St. Peter's and um, and obviously working at Rutgers where, you know, the way student athletes are expected to balance things and the support they get is much different. Whereas here at Princeton, um, you know, our guys uh, are encouraged to to kind of learn to manage it um, themselves. And we, we, of course, support them and have different levels of support, but um, they're not separated from from the rest of the student body the way other student athletes around the, around the country are, and I remember you know one of my first practices at Princeton and and somebody like wasn't maybe maybe just showed up just on time right they they weren't early they were like cutting it close to being a minute late for practice and I'm I'm looking over at Mitch I'm like man what's he gonna do what's he gonna do to this kid and it's like oh he had lab today like he's he's gonna be cutting it close to get here and I, I think Mitch being a former student athlete himself at Princeton has a really right. great understanding 
of what the guys need, what 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 the load is really like for them, that it's hard, that there are times in the year where they're juggling a lot and um, understanding that sometimes they need some grace and and we need to lighten their load or, or figure out, you know, how to balance things. So I give him a lot of credit um, to be able to balance that with the guys. I remember last year, you know, the week of your Sweet 16, we had a big media gathering in Jadwin and Tosan was really late. And everyone's, of course, wanted to talk to him. And we're like, where is this guy? And someone's like, he's in lab right now. And we're like, oh, that's a good, that's a good reason. Yeah, yeah. And, and credit to our guys. Even when they go into the Sweet 16, they show up to lab. You know, they actually go. So Amazing. Incredible. Yeah. And I remember guys were, you know, uh, Zach Martini had to get a, a stay on one of his assignments and for English. One professor gave it to him. Another one didn't. So he's out there in Sacramento writing a paper. I mean, really mm -hmm. – impressive stuff for for those guys and for your program uh what's what's it like to never have to use the transfer portal or worry about undergraduates transferring out i think it's it's a, it's awesome and i think the more i hear from other coaches around the country the more i appreciate what we have and uh i think you know first of all it allows us to be efficient in recruiting we know we're going to focus our eyes on the high school prospects which there's less and less people doing that. I think that's to our advantage. I think guys that are coming into our program know uh, there's not going to be a, a transfer senior coming in that I don't need to look over my shoulder or wondering if somebody's going to take right. my spot. I right. think they appreciate that. And then, you know, guys that, you know, if you, if you grew up playing in a high school program with your best friends for four years and you want that same type of experience in college, you want to be with a, a group of guys that, you grow up together with that hopefully are your best friends for life that you're sharing a lot of a lot of common bonds with you can't get that many places anymore uh and i and i think that's a really attractive thing for recruits i'm going to go in with a, a freshman class of four or five guys i'm going to be with them for four years the, the the guys a year ahead of me i'm going to be with for three like there's a chemistry there's a culture um i think it's a really big advantage on the court too so i'm i'm, I'm so happy we have it this way no question about that. And I, you know, I was thinking this, uh, I've, seen, I've seen Princeton play live three times, and I'll see you again at least one more time this regular season. But uh, I think this is this might be the most cohesive, most effective offensive unit I've, I've seen in my 21 years covering New Jersey college basketball in New Jersey. And really the only team I can even compare it to, uh, the, the last team I saw like this, was probably Mitch Henderson's senior year. I wasn't on the job then. I was just a fan. But, but yeah, that 98 team, which you've heard a lot about, of course, sure. uh, that that team was like this. It functioned like five guys were, were one on the court. And you could tell when you, you, know, when you watch basketball, that's, that's fun. That's special. And that is definitely a product of guys playing together and continuity in your program. I want to ask you about Mitch, uh, you know, as a coach, as a mentor, what, what is – this is kind of a broad question, but what is the biggest key to Mitch's success? And what's the biggest thing you've learned from him, Brett? You know, I was thinking about this the other day. And, and I know like when I, when I got here, my background was so different. I've been here 12 years now and I don't even remember what I thought about basketball before I got here because, <laughs> because my whole, the way I see the game I know is so different and that's, uh, you know, credit to Mitch and, and uh, you know, getting a chance to, to be, um, to be taken into this program, which has just such a rich history and tradition and, and, um, and a, a great legacy of coaches. And um, Mitch has been, been awesome in, um, 
and leading me the way through so much of this and giving me great opportunities and experiences to to grow in, in my role. So uh, I can't even begin to start the things that he's that he's taught me and I've learned from him. Um, but but I do think that his ability to adapt over these 12 years and he'll adapt the next 12 and the 12 after that. Uh, the game changes, the the generation, the players change. I talked about, you know, his his ability to understand what the guys are going through right. um, off the court with their academics. And, and each, you know, th- there was a COVID challenge, which, you know, there was no blueprint for that. And, and there's going to be another challenge in the next coming years. And, and the next group of, you know, freshmen that come in in five or ten years are going to have a whole different um, kind of set of obstacles. And I think his ability to adapt and, and give the players – what they need and the way he's changed uh, over the 12 years. He, he really, he always wants to grow and get better. And I think that's as good a lesson as any. It seems like he's taken all the best aspects of Princeton basketball as, you know, invented the modern Princeton basketball by Pete Carrill, his college coach. And he's taken all those things and he's put a modern twist on them. So like all those fundamentals are still there. The incredible passing, the, the razor sharp cuts, the spacing, but now, like more attacking, more free flowing, you know. Yeah. So yeah. not draining the shot clock, not winning games in the 40s and 50s. So that's really it's been a fun evolution to watch, and and I, I bet it's fun to play for too. Um, I, you kind of touched on my next question. We're almost done here. I really appreciate the time, Brett. There's just so many interesting things we could talk about. You know, you you've had such varied experience, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. You know, you came up the ranks through Rutgers basketball and Rutgers athletics in general, you know, with your father being a staple there in the athletic department for so long, big state school, big East, when you were there, big spotlight. So what are the most notable differences? Is it like totally night and day? What, what jumps out at you is the most biggest difference between, you know, these two legacy schools that you've, you've worked at and you've, you've lived through. Well, I'll, I'll start with the similar similarities. And I, I learned yeah. this in, in the first trip to the NCAA tournament I had in, at Princeton in 2017. For, for whatever goes on before the game, after the game, when the ball is tipped and, and, and you're out there and there's, you know, 20 minutes on the clock to start the half and there's, there's a, a bench on the other side and everything's the same. So, so as different as things might be, when the ball tips, uh, our guys are the same. They want to win. Uh, as coaches, we want to win. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna play hard, tough, physical. Um, I, I do think that there's more similarities than differences as far as the, the things on the court. Right. Um, but I, I just I just think it's really unique to have a group of guys that are this committed to being great at everything they do, and that's basketball, that's academics, that's sometimes with uh, social social justice issues or things with the community. I mean, these guys are passionate about a lot of things and uh, they make me better every day. I learn from them every day in, in uh, just, just the way they approach every aspect of their life is, is really special. All right. My last question uh, and a sticking with the family theme, your son Cooper is one and a half. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. will, will you steer him into the family business? Uh, I, the, what am I supposed to say? I'll be happy with whatever he decides. Right. But I mean, I mean, shoot, Jerry, I mean, I would be, I would be so happy if, if, you know, just, just to share whatever he does professionally, but just to share my love of sports with him. And, uh, you know, I, I shout out a little, you know, a few different people in my family. First, my wife is a, is a strength coach, was a division one strength coach at Virginia right. tech, Maryland, BMI. And so he's got, 
He's got it from both sides of the family, so he's not going to have too much of a choice. Obviously, my dad and his impact on me uh, yeah, working. Kevin in, McConnell in, at Rutgers. In, yeah, in, in, in college athletics and, and a little bit of professional athletics. My mom, all-county softball pitcher at Franklin, keeping it very New Jersey. She, um, she thinks everything I do is a little bit better than it actually is. She heard the Ivy League tournament was in New York City this year. She thought it was Madison Square Garden. Not quite. <laughs> but, um but the sports are in our in our blood, and and uh, would I love to share this stuff with Cooper for sure? He gets to as many games as he can, but uh, we're just we're just thrilled to have him, and and um, the love and joy he's brought to all of us has, has been awesome. Brett, you ask, what am I supposed to say? I think you were exactly supposed to shout out everybody just the way you did. Good job. I'll tell you, Jerry Carino has given me great dad advice in the past, and I will continue to go to him. So shout out to you, Jerry. I love. Seeing seeing your kids on your social media and stuff too. My, my number so. one piece of advice is don't don't get used to sleeping. So don't, <laughs> so. I've, I've already given that up. Trust yeah, me. It ain't coming back. And my kids are eleven and thirteen. And it's still maybe when they go to college, I'll get back to you. All right. Yeah. That, that's folks. Brett McConnell, uh, one of the architects of Princeton basketball's fantastic run that they're having. He will be a head coach maybe someday soon. For now. We're going to enjoy this terrific Tigers team. Brett, thanks so much for coming on the Jersey Jump Shot. Thanks for having me, Jerry. Take care. See you soon. All right. Well, we went a little long, 28 minutes, but really, what incredible substance. Uh, I'm flying solo today. But, I mean, really, not solo, right? That was Brett was the star of that show. And just terrific having him on. Uh, it's just been a great resource for, uh, for, for me, for understanding the coaching profession and – what a terrific job he's done as great family, like you mentioned. So super grateful to have him on. Maybe we'll hear from him again in March. Who knows? Uh, I want to just touch on two other quick things. We had a really interesting week with Seton Hall. They, as everybody knows, they blew out St. John's. Rick Pitino had a scratch from the game with COVID. And then Seton Hall lost an epic triple overtime home game against number 18 Creighton on Saturday. The best game in the Big East all season, one of the very best in college basketball. One of those games where, yeah, somebody had to lose, but there really was no loser. Anyone who watched that would be super impressed with both teams. And I want to mention, I thought Creighton was terrific, took a lot of body blows, came back and made some huge shots. Seton Hall, they're no fluke, folks. Were they, were they not very good in the first month of the season at a conference? Yes, they were not very good. That team's gone. As long as the Pirates stay healthy, this is an NCAA tournament team and maybe a really good one and a dangerous one. And they have not matched up well with Creighton in the past, but boy, did they give their did they did they go blow for blow with a really good Blue Jays team in front of one of the loudest crowds I have ever heard at the Prudential Center. Been covering college basketball games there since it opened 17 years ago now. And it was a wild scene. There was some controversy regarding the officiating. And I just want to say, I do acknowledge, and we've had we've had Ray Perone, who was a longtime Big East official, as our guest on the Jersey Jump Shot in the past. I want to acknowledge officiating basketball is very hard. There's three guys. It's a it's a fast moving game. Uh, there's a, you know there's a lot of judgment involved. There's not a whole lot of opportunities to go to replay. You know, maybe obviously at the end of the games there are, but it is a tough game to officiate. 
And I generally do. I do favor a loose whistle. I think the players should play. No one wants to see a 40 or 50 foul game, a parade to the foul line. Nobody wants to see that with players, starters fouling out. Nobody wants to see that. So I, I do want to say, I thought for the most part, for, mo- for much of that game, the loose whistle consistently called worked pretty well, but there were some big, big uh, gaps at the end of the game. The biggest of which I thought was after calling a loose whistle for, you know, 50 minutes at the end of double overtime to blow like a touch foul, uh, really a, a no foul call when to negate Seton Hall to discount there what would have been a game-winning layup by Alamir Dawes was just a brutal, brutal break for the Pirates. And look, this is sports. This is what happens. But that was a tough pill to swallow. I know Creighton fans felt like there were some whistles that should have gone their way. And that's true, of, of course. But that that whistle and that arena thought that game was in hand. And, you know, Creighton comes down and misses that final shot. Seton Hall would have won that game if that whistle didn't blow after Kadari Richmond steals the inbounds and passes it into Dawes for the layup. So a really shocking turn of events there. We had to ask Shaheen Holloway about it. Uh, and Al Dawes, of course, they're not going to – look, No, almost no no coach is going to blame officials in a postgame, and they, they shouldn't. You know, just for the simple fact that it's not, it's not smart for them. they got to see these refs again to hammer the officiating. But that was a rough, rough break. And one other thing I want to say about the officials in that game is that the uh, – you know, asking security to to have the student section quiet down, that was Bush League. I mean, I sit in front of those students. I've sat in that, that little table in front of them on the baseline for years. I've heard way worse, way worse than I heard on Saturday. Were they, were they heckling Creighton's bench? Yeah, they, they heckled the opposing bench. It's college basketball. That's what student sections do. Uh, were they yelling at the officials? Yeah, they were yelling at the officials, of course. That's what student sections do. But to have them, you know, to have the security tell them to tone it down, I mean, that's just Bush League. How soft can you be? This is the Big East. You're well paid to officiate these games. Should should they put up with, with heats of abuse? No, and they have the right to eject fans who do that. That was not what was going on from the Seton Hall student section. It was very thin-skinned. Uh, I hope we don't see a repeat of that. I'll be on the lookout for that in the future games. Let's grow some skin, folks. Come on. So that just rubbed me the wrong way, and I wanted to mention that. Uh, but it was a great atmosphere and a great game. I want to mention Rutgers quickly. And Seton Hall, by the way, 26 in the AP, top 25. Uh, they'll have a chance to break in this week. Got a bounce back against Providence Wednesday. Good team, good opponent. Could go either way. We'll see what their bounce back skills are, starting with Shaheen Holloway. And then really tough game at Marquette, a revenge game for Marquette which is ranked 14th. Seton Hall wins both of those, and they'll be in great shape. But I think the goal for the Pirates should be to split. This week keeps the chains moving forward. Uh, Rutgers looked really good in beating Nebraska at home in overtime. Nebraska's good. is a good team. Rack was jumping. Uh, Rutgers took some blows and came back down 12 in the second half. Super impressive. Got a great game from Big Cliff. Uh, really took it to Nebraska physicality-wise. I thought Steve Peichel pushed all the right buttons with his, his substitutions uh, and, you know, just a big win. And then you think maybe Rutgers is turning the corner and then they go and get just steamrolled at Illinois. A couple thoughts about that. One is I just think we're back to the, we're back to where Rutgers 
it's not one of their most talented teams. Uh, we've discussed the reasons why, because, you know, they had two two veteran guards left them late in the offseason cycle. We don't have to rehash all that here, but it's not one of their most talented teams. So we're back to Rutgers really needing the rack. And I've said this, the rack is a drug. And for lesser teams or maybe less talented teams, the rack is a drug that when you don't have it, it's hard to function. Rutgers is now one in seven in games away from home this season. The one win, of course, being at Seton Hall, a great win, uh, but so far an outlier. And so I do think that's part of what you're going to get. Like the the home environment in Jersey Mike's Arena can lift a team that's maybe not as good to, to do something superhuman or beyond themselves, which is why I would not count Rutgers out against number two Purdue on Sunday. You'd be foolish to count them out. Rutgers can beat anybody at home. They've had Purdue's number, but away from home, it's just not the same team this year. It's just that huge disparity is back that we saw a few years ago. And so I don't know how far can you get with that. It's going to be hard. Illinois is really good. And it also, speaking of you know scenes in the crowd, Terrence Shannon comes back from a six-game suspension after being accused of rape. Uh, he gets an injunction against his own school to play. The school had suspended him. I'm not gonna, I'm not here to debate the legal aspects or ramifications of or merits of that judge's decision. I'm not an attorney, uh, but what I will say is it just it was an awkward watching just watching on TV. It was awkward to see a standing ovation for him as he checks in the game. Brad Underwood played him. Most coaches would have played him uh, when he's reinstated by a judge. That's just the way college athletics is at that high level. But the standing ovation for him checking in, are a home fans going to cheer when he makes a bucket? Of course. Of course. That's their team. But the standing ovation was, when he checked in was awkward and I thought unseemly. And so uh, it was just a weird week in the stands, on the court uh, for New Jersey college basketball. And so, but that's, that's the sport we all, we all uh, know and love is, you know, Weird stuff happens. It drives you nuts sometimes, and you never know when you're going to get an epic game or an epic season. And so far, it's been a fascinating on all counts for New Jersey College Hoops. Thanks for joining me. Thanks again to Brett McConnell. Enjoy the hardwood this week, and we'll be back next week with more Jersey Jump Shot. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are let. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.